0: might be wondering where is uh, Zach what's going on so to uh, stamp out any rumors the Adams family is off on a a family retreat family reunion so they're having some uh, relaxation time with uh, the family so um, that's where they are just in case you were wondering so uh, also having a number of new people here I want to just kind of throw out the uh, leadership structure for Revelation Church Um, some of you might have grown up in a church where there's a senior pastor and maybe some elders. Uh, The primary person making the decision is the senior pastor, and then there's some elders that kind of work in different facets within the church. We at Revelation Church believe that there there is a call for uh, a shared leadership uh, structure. So we have what's called a shared eldership, they are, there are five elders within the church, two locally, myself and Zach, and then we have what's called three provisional elders. They are part of our church network, and they um, kind of fill in as elders until we are able to raise up additional three elders within our congregation. With that shared leadership model, there isn't one person making a decision. Instead, it's all five coming to a consensus on decisions that are made. So for example, if I have a conviction about something and the other elders don't, but they want to encourage me to move forward with it, then we will go ahead and move forward with it. If there's somebody that has a, a check in their heart about something, then we will continue to discuss it and we will not necessarily move forward in that situation. So it's really trying to tap into the skills and the um, uh, the skills and the um giftings of the other elders and just life experiences and things like that so we try to bring in people that uh, have um, different giftings and we complement each other well from a leadership standpoint so that's kind of how revelation church is set up from a leadership standpoint it's a little bit different than maybe what you grew up with but we feel that it's a very healthy structure because there's five that work together instead of just putting it all on one specific person to lead the church um, by themselves so with that that's that's what we have for revelation church so with the visitors here i just wanted to make sure that you are aware of that and as elders one of the giftings of elders is uh proclaiming the word of god so fortunately i have the uh, privilege of bringing the word this morning So as we jump in, let's um, look at the scripture we have this morning. We've been doing a three part series on the image of God, looking at how that plays out in a variety of facets. First, the image of God, and then also sexuality, male and female, we covered that last week. And then this week, we're gonna look at uh, ruling and reigning, and then also the idea of be fruitful and multiply. And what does that mean for us as believers? So made in the image of God, Uh, there's a book called 50 Core Truths of the Christian Faith by Greg Allison, and he brings up three different points for the image of God. So first you have the substantive view. This is the image of God to be some characteristics such as rationality, free will, or moral consciousness. There's also the relational view. The image of God to be the experience of community that men and women enjoy among themselves and derivatively that human beings and God enjoy. So there's a relational component to being made in the image of God. There's also the functional view, the image of God to be some human activity, exercising dominion over other creatures, being stewards of the creation. So these three views are gonna play into the scripture that we look at this morning. So the scripture we have is Genesis chapter one, verses 26 through 31. I'm gonna go ahead and read that one more time. So follow along, there's a pew Bible in front of you or on your favorite device or uh, Bible. All right, so, then God said, "'Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food and it is so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good indeed. Evening came and then morning, the sixth day. So the first component that we come to this morning is ruling, reigning, having dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, livestock, the whole earth, starting in verse 26, and then it picks back up in verse 20 at the end of verse 28 through verse 31. Now the idea of ruling, reigning, having dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air over the whole world has turned into something negative. If you think about it within our culture, there's something negative about this idea. It's all about us getting what we want out of the earth. And we, once again, as humans have taken something that God has made good and perverted it. Because if we do the reigning and ruling in having dominion over things appropriately as God has intended, it is a beautiful thing. Now, I wanna get into three different analogies for having dominion, starting with our context and then we'll move back to a more biblical perspective. So first question, have you heard the term CEO, chief uh, executive officer? Who here has heard that term, okay? What about COO, chief operating officer? Who's heard that term? Okay, a few less hands. Yeah, so what is the purpose of the CEO? The purpose of the CEO is forward-thinking vision. They set the vision for the company, the long-term direction of the company. Then you ask, what is the purpose of the COO? This is kind of a unique position. They're operationally, focused in the now, implementing the vision of the CEO in the present, right now. So if we take that analogy and think about it, God as the CEO, he's ultimately the one in charge. The CEO is the one that is fully responsible for everything that the company does. And then there's us as the COO, get to be part of what he is doing. Now, most of us have a job as the CEO of our domain, so God gives us a domain that we are in charge of, that we rule and reign over, we are called to a level of mastery, a level of excellence in our current role. Now, keep in mind, this is not a call to work harder to gain something, i.e. the love of God. We can so easily pervert hard work with the idea that God's gonna love me more if I work harder. That's not what I'm talking about. This isn't a question of salvation, though it is a call to hard work. We should stand out wherever we are. Our laziness can impact our witness and relationships with other people. Think about those that you work with. You can probably identify those that pull their own weight and those that don't, right? So we shouldn't be ones that put a negative perspective on who we are. In what we're about. So going back to the relational view of being made in the image of God, laziness creates a negative response in our relationships, which in turn can impact our community. We should strive for healthy relationships and communities in, a, in the way we approach work. Hard work should be something we strive for in a healthy way. Keep in mind, healthy way. not at the expense of everything else. You might also be here this morning thinking, well, I'm still trying to figure out God's calling on my life. There's something to be said about finding out what God's calling is on your own life. But what are you doing right now? Are you working hard and building relationships with people, pointing people to God where you are right now? This has been a conviction in my own life. I think about the work environment that I am in. I can so easily pass the relationships that I interact with people currently for that job that I want to get to. I want to get there. And once I'm there, then I'll start building relationships with people because that's where I truly want to be. So once I get there, then, then the real relationship building begins. I don't think that's a healthy perspective. I think we are called to be where we currently are, building relationships with the people that we are currently interacting with, pointing them to God. Now we move into a second analogy for ruling and reigning that we can find in scripture. And as we study the book of Genesis, we'll see the scripture points us back to the first three chapters of Genesis and the Garden of Eden. Remember, what we're talking about this morning is in the Garden of Eden when everything was perfect. So Genesis 37, through the end of the book, we see the life of Joseph. Genesis 41, let's go ahead and turn there real quick. Genesis 41, and looking at verse 37, we see 37 through 45, the proposal, the proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants, and he said to them, Can we find anyone like this, a man who has God's spirit in him? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is a no there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. You will be over my house, and all my people will obey your commands. Only I, as king, will be greater than Pharaoh, than you. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, See, I am placing you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him with fine linen garments and placed a gold chain around his neck. He had Joseph ride in his second chariot and servants called out before him, make way. So he placed him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and no one will be able to raise his hand or foot in all of the land of Egypt without your permission. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name zephanath Panana and gave him a wife, Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest at On. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. So we see that Joseph is in charge. He is second only to Pharaoh. Very similar to the relationship that we have with God. God is ultimately in control, but he is working a plan out and we get to be part of that. And the story of Joseph points us back because Pharaoh gave Joseph complete control over Egypt. So Joseph was only second to Pharaoh and God has given us a similar position to rule over creation and second only to him. Think about that for a minute. The God of the universe, the one that holds everything together, that is more powerful than we could ever imagine, has invited us to take part in his story. Now, how are we supposed to rule and reign over all the earth? This gets to my third analogy with two polar extremes. I'm gonna focus in on the Uh, environmental piece, because I know that's kind of a controversial piece uh, considering where we are today. So I wanna press into that a little bit. And I know that with ruling and reigning, there's some other avenues that we can go into, but um, with time, I'm just gonna focus on the environmental piece, okay? So there's two polar extremes within that realm, okay? And I want you to think about this as a rental home, okay? So we have the one extreme where you pay rent for a house that you do nothing with. You cover everything with plastic. You don't touch anything. You don't want to dent anything. You don't want to use anything. You leave everything exactly how it is. And then you have the other extreme. You trash it. This isn't my house. I don't care. doesn't matter. And maybe with the cost of lumber, (laughs) you part out the house for cash until there's nothing left. So you can see that there's two extremes and clearly these are not good options. And I believe we have these extremes we come to when we think about ruling and reigning over creation. One perspective is that we should try to preserve everything. We spend all of our energy trying to save the planet at the expense of what God has called us to as a functional part of being made in his image. We're distracted by the desire to maintain creation instead of focusing on what God has called us to. The other perspective is to not worry about it because it's all going to burn up. We're not talking, we're not taking into consideration what God has called us into either. I would suggest that neither extreme is a biblical perspective. There is something to ruling and reigning that involves us as humans tending to creation, maybe growing food or building structures for our homes and places to work, but in a way that is stewarding God's creation. Some of you might have heard the phrase regenerative agriculture. I'm kind of a farming nerd. I do that uh, in my spare time but there's this term that's becoming popular, regenerative agriculture. This is the idea of looking at the processes and living things that God has created and then using them to our benefit, but not misplacing the way that God has designed them to be. For example, allowing a pig to be the way that God intended them to be. Maybe you've seen Movies like Food, Inc., things like that, where pigs are raised in pens on rubber mats inside enclosed places. That's not the way God intended them to be. Instead, he intended them to be out in the sunshine, enjoying the grass of the field, doing things like that. And so I have a quote for you from one of uh, my farmer friends, Joel Salatin. It says, you know, in our culture today, our Western reductionist Roman linear fragmented culture, we don't ask how to make a pig happy. We ask how to grow it faster, fatter, bigger, cheaper. And that's not a noble goal. That is not the way God intended it to be. So morally, factory farming is wrong the substantive view of being made in the image of God, we have a conscience to see when things are bad. And so I live on a farm. We have a couple acres up in Athol. And so before you call me an environmentalist and wanna throw me out, uh, hear me out, please. We, we have set up a situation where we have a handful of chickens. And what do chickens like to do? They like to scratch. They like to wander around. They like to dig up the dirt, eat the insects, do those kinds of things. But we also like to eat them, right? <laughs> right. So with that, how, how, do we, how do we go about ruling and reigning as God has called us, but not exploiting the animal? This is just a small example. We've set up uh, what we call a tractor, but it's essentially just a bunch of boards stacked up, make a box, rectangle box. We cover it with netting and we put the chickens in there. And then every day we move them on grass from one place to the next place. And then the next day we move it a little bit farther. And they do exactly what they were designed to do. They scratch in the ground, they're out in the sunshine, they eat the bugs. That's what they were designed to do. They are what we would call happy chickens. So that, that's just a small example of looking at what do we have that God created and how do we use that to our benefit? So I can grow up chickens, they can be happy, healthy chickens, but then when it's time, we can harvest the chickens as well. So there's something to that. And the process of ruling and reigning is not a simple one. I'm not saying this is an end all be all, got all the answers. It requires us to act, to use our creativity and think, study the processes that God has designed, engineer things in a way that allows us to use the resources that God has given us, but not in a way that is reckless, lazy. Or the other perspective, it's all going to burn approach. So I'm not going to worry about it. The two extremes are not what we are called to. Instead, we should live in the tension of furthering human prosperity and caring for the creation. Notice the tension there. There's human prosperity. The the level of prosperity for humans around the world has increased substantially over the years. But then there's also the caring for the creation. And so how do we live in that tension. This is not a call to worship the creation. Please hear me on that. This is not a call to worship the creation. We are called to worship who? Oh, it should be a pretty big response on that one. Who are we called to worship? God, God, God and God alone, correct? Amen? Amen. Amen. So we can look at a handful of passages, looking at Psalms 19.1, The heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Creation declares the glory of God. We see in Colossians 1.16, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Speaking of Jesus. So the creation was created by God in heaven and earth, the visible and the invisible. We also see in Revelation 4.11, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will, they exist. By whose will? His will, God's will, they exist and were created. So the creation speaks to the glory of God. So now we look at the command for us to rule and reign in something worth, as something that is worth reflecting. And it leads us into our next section, looking at verse 28. First part, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Now, Genesis really does cover everything. Last week, we talked about male and female and the hot topics there. And now it addresses the idea of procreation. There's many verses that talk about this idea of being fruitful and multiply. Let's just look at a couple real quick. Uh, Genesis 9, verse 7. But you, be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply on it. Then we look at 16, Genesis 16:10. 16, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring, and they will be too many to count. Look at seven, chapter 17, verse 20. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will certainly bless him. I will make him fruitful and will multiply him greatly. He will father 12 tribal leaders and I will make him into a great nation. And it goes on. Genesis 26, 24, 28, 3, 35, 11, 48, 4. There's a number of verses that speak to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis. You think that's a main point of Genesis? I think that's definitely, may not, it is not the main, main point, but there is something to the idea of being fruitful and multiply. So it's an important topic for Christians to think through. And so let's jump into it. All right, here we go. Christians are called to have children. So what do we make of birth control? Temporary as in drugs or permanent as in vasectomies or hysterectomies? When is it an appropriate time, if at all? Having children brings up the question, what about the population? What about stewarding the earth well? These are all questions that our culture is asking, and we as Christians should ask as well. I think we have to get to the person's heart. We see this many times in the gospels. Jesus is not interested in the rules, he is interested in the heart. Matthew 5, we see that murder and adultery begin where? In the heart. It's a heart condition. We ask the questions, why are you pursuing these birth control options? Is it just because everyone else is? It's the cool thing to do. I don't know if that necessarily applies when you're talking some of the permanent options, but anyway, regardless. Uh, Selfish reasons, trying to rule and reign too much. I'm gonna take it upon myself to control the population of the earth, so I will withhold being fruitful and multiplying. These are serious questions and something to think about, to wrestle with. A report that I found on the Lancet.com has a quote. It says, by 2050, 151 countries were forecasted to have a TFR, total fertility rate lower than the replacement level. And 183 were forecasted to have a TFR lower than replacement by 2,200. The population is on a trajectory of decline, which goes against the scripture mandate of being fruitful and multiplying. However, you can find statistics to justify anything, right? But there is one thing, I I did find another statistic that's fascinating. The fertility rate among Christians is slightly higher at about 2.7 children per woman, which is a good thing. We should celebrate that. But we still have to wrestle with this idea. What is the reason for having kids? What is the reason for not having kids? I have a quote from Kevin DeYoung, writing for the Gospel Coalition says, I do mean, however, for Christians to consider whether our approach to career, to family, and to a covenantal understanding of the faith is the result of prayerful, biblical, and theological reflection, or the result of the invisible pressures and assumptions of the world we inhabit. It is likely that the future it's likely that in the future, only couples having lots of children, which at this point is three or more, will be religious couples. And I hope that evangelical Christians will be well represented among them. So this is something that we are currently wrestling with. The population birth rate is declining. Christian fertility is kind of hanging out Are the decisions we make regarding having children informed by God or by the environment that we live in? Where do we go for answers? When we're wrestling with this question, do we go to the internet? What can I find on Google? Or do we go to God's word? Thank you, Matt, amen. We go to God's word. That's where we should go. Because look, kids are hard. Just ask my wife. Bedtimes, uh, honest truth here, all right? Bedtimes have been a real struggle in our house lately. So, having kids is hard. It's a struggle, but flip that over. Kids are also amazing, wonderful, breathtaking gifts that I wouldn't trade for the world. Amen? It's difficult but they are a true blessing. So when the culture tells us don't have kids, they will interfere with your career or the world will become overpopulated. That is simply not true. We serve a sovereign God. Maybe you haven't heard that idea, but a sovereign God, he has control over all things. So when somebody has a baby, God isn't surprised He's not like, oh no, what do I do now? Now the population is too high. He has entrusted a precious living soul to you. And he's not surprised when you have a child. Now God has instituted the command of be fruitful and multiply because it is part of our image bearing. We as followers of Jesus are to be in relationship. Our first relationship should begin in our family. I know that's not true for everyone. Remember, we are dealing with Eden here, the way that God designed it to be, the way that we should strive it to be. So our first relationships begin in the family. This is why the family construct is so important. Last week, we talked about male and female. You can listen to the podcast if you missed it. But God has created us in a way that we experience a fuller perspective of God when we live out the attributes that make up male and female. If one is missing, we are not experiencing the fullness of God. Having these attributes lived out in the context of a family allows for children to gain a fuller perspective of who God is and what he is like. And living out is part of being God's image bearer because it requires us to grow in relationships. Being in a family is tough, but we're called to be in relationships beyond just our family, because God is a relational God. We find this in the two greatest commandments. If you haven't done this, and I've been enjoying this recently, take the two greatest commandments, which are love God, love people. That's my oversimplification simplification of it, but love God, love people. Take that and look at scripture and see what you will find. It is truly amazing. But we see in Deuteronomy chapter six, go ahead and turn there starting in verse one through verse nine. This is the command, the statues or, or, and ordinances, the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you so that you may follow them in the land you are about to enter and possess. Do this so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life by keeping all of his statues and commands I am living, I am giving you, your son and your grandson and, so that you may have a long life. Listen, Israel, and be careful to follow them so that you may prosper and multiply greatly because the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words, that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the door posts of, of your house and on your city gates. So we see, multiply greatly in verse three. We see love God in verse four. There is a connection between loving God and multiplying. Flip over real quick to Deuteronomy chapter eight. Looking at verse one, we see, carefully follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and take possession of the land the Lord swore to your fathers. So we see keeping the commands increase and taking possession. So we see all of it there. We follow the commandments of God, loving God, loving people. There's an increase, multiplying factor there and taking possession of what God has called us to. We see that similarly in Deuteronomy 30, verse 16. Flip over there just real quick. Looking at verse 16, for I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commands, statues and ordinances so that you may live and multiply and the Lord your God may bless you in the land you are entering to possess. Remember when we started Genesis, we talked about who wrote the book of Genesis. Speaking of Moses, the first five books. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, So I believe there is a tie between all of this. It's all one author, all tied together. There is something to keeping the commands of God and multiplying. But ultimately we see the culmination of this in Jesus. We look at Matthew 22. We're flipping around all over the place this this morning, but I gotta show you these things. So Matthew uh, chapter 22. looking at verse 37. And it says, he said to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it, love your neighbors as yourself. All the law and profit depend on these commands. All of this is dependent on these two things. So we live out these commands in relationship by showing love to one another. But that's only possible if we first love God. And we can only do that because he first loved us, which is how we find our way of loving him. So this is only possible because God first loved us, which is why we must first be right with him before we can fully love other people. Do you know the most loving thing you can do for someone else? What's the most loving thing you can do for someone else? Lay your life down? Yep. What's that? Share Jesus with them. Those are both good answers. I was looking for, tell, tell them about Jesus. That, that's one of the most loving things you can do for somebody else. And so as we get married and have children, we are to love them and tell them about Jesus. Then we come to the next question, what about single people? What do we do in that scenario? I've struggled with this for some time, but I've realized something, the mission, hear me on this, the mission of single people and married people is not different. We see in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. We as singled and married people are called to make disciples of Jesus, to point people to Jesus. There is no greater commandment because the most loving thing we can do is point people to Jesus. Whether it be our kids, someone at work, or a passerby on the street. So the mission is no different. We live out the great commission in love, the two greatest commandments. So the context may look different between a married person and those that are single. but the command is still the, still the same. Go and make disciples. I'm not trying to downplay the desires of those that are single and want to get married. Paul is a primary example of the gift that is singleness. We see in First Corinthians 7, flip over there, looking at verse 32. I want you to be without concern. The, married man is, the unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The married woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, so that she may be holy, both in body and in spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband, I am saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promise what is proper. And so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. So we see Paul speaks to singleness as a gift because you are able to be about God's work. For example, it's easier for a single person to pick up and move, to share the gospel with other people. And Paul did this repeatedly And this is how the church multiplied. We see this throughout Acts. Just a couple of references for you. So we see Acts two forty one. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about three thousand people were added to them. Acts six one. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, they are multiplying. Acts nine thirty one. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. These verses should point us all back to Genesis one, be fruitful and multiply. Not just simply by multiplying in the number of children, but in disciples, followers of Jesus. Jesus took part of this command to be fruitful and multiply. We see this in Matthew chapter one. If you flip back to Matthew chapter one, starting in verse one, what do you see there? You see the genealogy. So we see the genealogy in Matthew one that led to the birth of Jesus. All the people listed are part of God's plan story because they were fruitful and multiplied. So we'll go ahead. That's the. Got a couple questions here. We'll jump in. Given the language verbiage in verses 29 and 30, do you support the claim that seed bearing fruit was made for humans and green plants? Vegetables were designed for animals and not humans. And if you don't support that claim, could you pretend you do for the time it takes to answer this question? So, So looking at this scripture here, remember where we are in the timeline of humanity, we are before the fall, okay? And as we read this scripture, it talks about people eating fruits and vegetables, animals eating fruits and vegetables. This isn't an endorsement for being vegan, I will say that. But (laughs) with that in mind, there's something, when sin entered the world, there, there's a break from what God designed it to be, okay? So we were designed to eat fruits and vegetables. And if you actually dig in, and this is my nerd part coming out, but if you dig into it, you can actually see how, because of the way we've treated the soil, fruits and vegetables do not have the same nutritional content that they once had. So we can't even necessarily live on fruits and vegetables now because of what we've created. So with that, then we have to look at what happened. So there was the fall, and then there was the initial sacrifice. And who created the first sacrifice? God did. He sacrificed an animal to provide clothes for Adam and Eve because they were naked and ashamed. So the process of sacrifice and the process of eating animals came after the fall. And I don't know about you, but I look forward to the day when you can go out in the woods and not worry about bears chasing you and doing stuff like that. (laughs) I think that'll be truly amazing. But yeah, I think there's something to be said about what God created initially and what we've turned it into because we are not ruling and reigning appropriately. Uh, let's see. It is easier easy to deva- devalue animal life, but God didn't want to destroy Nineveh because of the people and the cattle there. Jonah four eleven and should not I spare Nineveh, the great city wherein are more than six score thousand people that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle. This surprised me since the church at large doesn't often talk about God caring about animals so strongly. Excuse me. So there's something that we have to keep in mind, okay? When When you're speaking about the image of God, who is the image of God? We are. So that automatically elevates humans above animals. So there there is a degree of separation between us and animals. That does not mean that we get to disrespect animals and treat them however we feel just because we are called to rule and reign. We are called to steward. Like we look up there, kingdom-focused stewardship is one of our core values. So we are looking to steward things well. I was talking earlier about there's processes and things that God has put into place and we are to identify those and live those out. So yes, we are called to love animals. We are called to love people. We are, And part of that is respecting animals because people have animals and we should respect them and we should respect the animals that we come across in nature. I mean, it's just, there. there's a respect level there that should be appropriate for us as believers when we look at creation and say, God has created this and I'm going to steward it well. One more. Would you consider married Christians who don't want to have kids to be in sin? Ooh. I think that goes back to the original point of what is the reason for not having kids? What is your reason for not having kids? If it's simply because you have elevated yourself to say that I know better than God, remember God is in control. He is sovereign above all, okay? So he's ultimate ruler. We are secondary to him. So with that, We are to obey his commands. And one of the commands here is be fruitful and multiply. So if we aren't going to do that, then we really have to dig into why. Why are we not doing that? And if it's simply just a selfish reason or whatever the issue might be, I mean, I'll I'll throw this out. One One of the things I didn't talk about is, what if you can't have kids? Are you in sin? I would say no, you are not in sin in that kind of situation. Unfortunately, we are in a broken environment. That's the environment that we live in. We live post fall. And so we live in an environment that is not the way that God intended it to be. So to answer your question directly, or indirectly actually, (laughs) if you don't have kids, you may or may not be in sin depending on your heart position? Why are you not having kids? Is it to further your career? I would push back on that. Is it because I'm worried about the population of the earth? I would push back on that. These are good questions, really appreciate that. If, if I haven't provided uh, enough clarity to the response or to the question, please come talk to me, I'd love to talk to you more about it. Um, Hopefully I've conveyed it enough to uh, kind of get the point out there, but uh, if you need clarification or wanna talk about it more, I'm more than happy to discuss it further. So as we transition to the time of communion, we think about as followers of Jesus, we are called to take part in communion until he returns. And what does communion represent? It represents his death on the cross. We are to remember what he has done on our behalf. Going back to the greatest thing that someone could do for another is to lay down their life. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He wanted to restore Eden. He wanted to bring us back to the way he intended things to be. See, we as humans have taken something that God created and we have perverted it. And so through the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is a way back to Eden. There is a way back to restoration. And so as we take part in communion, we get to celebrate what he has done on our behalf. He initiated this because he loves us.